X-rated movies. Podcast by two guys that used to date and now they don't. Now we talk about movies. I'm one half of your hosting team, Matthew Fisher. And the other half of your hosting team, Ryan Whedon. And Matt, it's Guest Fest. Yeah, it is. We got another Matt here. Oh, no. Hi. I don't know how they'll tell us apart. <laughs> we, yeah, we both, uh, they can tell us by names. Uh, <laughs> we're both. Oh, we should say his name. Matt yeah. Baum is here. Hello. Media Maven. <laughs> yes, it's are you, me. Are you comfortable being called a Maven? I was trying to think of the right word to describe I like what that. you do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that sounds great. What okay. is a Maven? I looked it up, and it's someone who knows a lot about, like, culture or things like that. Oh, so. that is what you are. Yeah. That's exactly, yes. Okay, good. Okay. I felt like it was appropriate. You know, I always, every time I like print business cards, because, you know, I'm cheap and I do them at home. Um, every time I do like a batch of eight or whatever fits on the sheet, um, I'm like, oh, I have writer on there, but maybe there's some other term because I do podcasts and I do videos and I do hosting and I do D&D. Maven. Maven is the yeah. word. But I mean, you do quite a number of things. A, you're a published author, uh, Defining Marriage. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, uh, what's the, the subtitle? A 40-Year Labor of Love? Uh, yeah, uh, Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love. It's interviews and stories from folks who fought for marriage equality over the last 40 years. So it's sort of, um, you know, starting in the 70s when people were like, gays getting married? Oh, <laughs> don't be absurd. Uh-huh. Um, Even some gays. Well, yeah, a lot, actually. And, it, you know, encountering more and more skepticism up into the 80s when they were like first of all we've got more important things to worry about and second uh, a lot of gays were like i think we could do better than marriage mm-hmm. like that's for straight people yeah it, you know you hear a lot of people talk about how like the gay the, specifically the, the marriage equality thing is like fast in terms of civil rights arcs but mm-hmm. like what your book presupposes is uh maybe it wasn't like <laughs> no in fact you can go back even further in my book there's not a lot of stories to tell because there wasn't a lot of momentum for it but you can look at like i think from the 50s late 50s there was an article of uh, one magazine that the cover says something like homophile marriage question mark oh okay mm. yeah so wow. i mean yeah, you know relationship recognition in some form or another goes back thousands of years for queer people so you know it's nothing new but 70s is when like the momentum really the ball really got going i'm glad we've moved past the word homophile that just doesn't <laughs> doesn't feel right i don't hate it honestly yeah <laughs> I mean, I'm partial to sodomite myself, okay. so. <laughs> I can't remember what I was reading. I was reading something about a, a gay man uh, a while ago, and he was described euphemistically, this is something from like the 1930s, as having a temperament uniquely suited for the theater. Oh. That was it. <laughs> you can read between those lines. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you have a YouTube channel. The, I mean, mm-hmm. the, is it just one or do you have more than one? It's mainly just the one for now. I also have another one for another project I do called Queens of Adventure, but it's usually just under my name, uh, Matt Baum, and uh, I do uh, weekly news updates about what's happening with queer and queer news. But um, the big videos that I do that can sometimes like go viral. I, yeah, that's the that's the plan. <laughs> um, are about queer episodes of Married with Children or All in the Family or Seinfeld or The Simpsons or Frasier. May I recommend the Murphy Brown episode? Oh, I like yes. that one a lot. Which one? So there's two. The one where the uh, coworker uh, they just they think that he's gay and like uh, I think it, Miles is that the character with the glasses mm-hmm. name on the show it gets really like well everybody gets kind of squeaked out but um, yeah but, but yeah. isn't the Miles Miles the one that's a little I'm quivering <laughs> my hand here for those for those at home well yeah well in is the it, end I isn't think he, he like, the one that could be like characteristically like considered gay few, or uh, he's neurotic is what yeah. he is. Uh, okay yeah yeah, yeah. but There's he's some like coding isn't he like Niles in Frasier. 
I wouldn't go that far, okay. but okay. you know, I it's guess a he's more manic a, than that. Yeah, he's as Niles as the show gets, but which isn't very. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Paul Rubens was on the show like in later seasons, so mm. that's that's a little queer. I don't remember that? Yeah, yeah, it was after it was you know part of the comeback, and uh, we hadn't seen him in a long time, and he oh. definitely was not doing anything peewee. He was just he was like Murphy's like weirdly sinister assistant. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, I do uh, YouTube videos about uh, gay milestones on television. It's called Culture Cruise is the name of that series. Okay. And then, of course, you have uh, the Dungeons and Drag Queens. Yes. So we started that as a live show here in Seattle, Dungeons and Drag Queens. It's exactly what it sounds like, a live show where drag queens play Dungeons and Dragons. We play through an entire adventure for a live audience, mostly like a comedy improv show with dice. Uh, and then we turned it into a podcast called Queens of Adventure, a uh, comedy storytelling podcast. It looked like it got a lot of traction uh Last weekend or two weekends ago at PAX, it seemed mm. like like everyone was really excited about it. Yeah, we we're very fortunate. We had a great audience. So we did two live shows um, in the last like week. Uh, one was at Cremework here in Seattle um, with a fantastic cast of Irene Dubois, Arson Nikki, Freya Love, Butelino Kippel, and London Bradshaw. And then we did uh, a panel at PAX where we had basically like an hour to get through an entire D&D quest. So an that hour? Was... <laughs> Could you even like get your characters picked at that time? <laughs> we really like we zoomed on through. This is not the first time we've done it. So we've like learned a few things about just like we got to go. Uh, so it's just we just charge on through. It's really like an hour and 20 minutes. But um yeah, yeah, we got through a whole, uh, I guess, no spoilers, because we're going to put it online eventually, but uh, they it, it took place in the Sasquatch Theater, and so there may have been a Bigfoot or two in the adventure. Oh, Fun. okay. Yeah. Cool. Was it just Butylene? It was, yeah, Butylene was there. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's great, because like, we found that drag and Dungeons and & Dragons goes together like really well. It's all about like making up your character and working with a sure. group and going with the flow when everything goes wrong. Yeah, a little bit of improv, cosplay, mm-hmm. things that yeah, yeah. kind of go hand in hand. We've been very fortunate with um, our cast, too, because they do some amazing costumes. One other podcast that you do, and you can't, we can't not mention this, is uh, The Sewers of Paris, yeah. <laughs> which both Matt and I were on. Yeah, yeah. So I talked to queer folks about the entertainment that's changed their lives. Um, so, you know, the books and movies and TV and shows that have, like, they're sort of like the queer canon of, like, the most important influential uh, stuff. And uh, we talked about music. We talked about The Simpsons. Uh, gosh, what else did we talk about? I talked about Greg Araki. You didn't. Which I, I thought I you didn't. would. Yeah, that did, is weird. <laughs> I thought you would because you started with The Simpsons and Matt kind of laughed because you recorded your episode second. Yeah. And he, Matt laughed and I was like, he's probably like, he's like, oh, I've heard this one before. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, my episode did not go the way I thought it would, but that's fine. Like, uh, it was great. It was just like, I just, I knew that I was going to start with The Simpsons as a jumping off point wherever it went. That was fine. But I did have some things I wanted to hit that I just did not. Like, mm. I wanted to talk about Star Trek and mm. I wanted to talk about uh, Greg Araki as a big one, too. But yeah, that didn't happen. It, it's like a little mini therapy session. I still haven't listened to mine entirely because it's almost too personal. <laughs> it's like being naked in the rain and like all your questions are like raindrops. <laughs> it's just, I, I feel all of them. And I don't, we, I, you know, I listen to our own podcast just fine. I think it's because I'm, relating my thoughts and emotions via a vehicle that's designed to do that and me just like blatantly putting stuff out there was sort of new for me mm-hmm. and so like I can when I listen to myself I can sense my uncomfortableness and mm. just trying to openly talk about stuff and I'm like oh this is like a therapy session <laughs> It's probably good that we weren't eye to eye. Like I would need to be like in a couch sitting with my gaze away <laughs> yep. from you. Yep. You know, Terry Gross uh, almost never has the person in the studio with her when she does her interviews. Oh, oh really? Even if they're like in the same city, they'll just go in different rooms. 
Really? Huh. And then I forget who the guy, who's the famous guy, Errol Morris, mm. uh, invented. Oh, he's got the, oh, like, yeah. the monster camera <laughs> yeah. device. Yeah, I forget the name of it, but basically it's like a teleprompter. And so you look, the interview subject and the interviewer are both looking into the camera and they see with a teleprompter the other person's face. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, they're yeah. talking to like this projection of the other person's face. So they could both be staring into the camera. Very unsettling. Ugh. I feel like that would make me uncomfortable. It'd be very intense. Just like eye contact the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, uh, I think we, we got the Cliff Notes version of your, your vast catalog. That's the oeuvre. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what makes him a maven. So you want to get into today's movie then? I'm worried we're not going to have anything to talk about. (laughs) God. Uh, yeah, it was definitely a concern of mine. Um, <laughs> so today's movie, uh, the William Friedkin classic, Boys in the Band, a seminal gay film. Mm, for, landmark. Uh, yeah, a number of reasons. I mean, one, this is like all queer characters with the exception of the, the one straight dude who crashes the party. Well, it's question, Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in classic theater form, uh, uh, that question never really gets resolved. Or there's a couple questions about him that never quite get resolved. But I'm sure things like this were, I don't want to say commonplace, but at least done in the theater before that. But to have a movie like this was quite different for 1970. Yeah. Stonewall was a year old when this movie came out. Let me think. So the, um, yeah, yeah. The the, play play predated Stonewall, but the movie came after. Yeah. Some people even think that the play influenced Stonewall in ways. I think it's just that the culture was changing and it was a, a Stonewall was a symptom of times changing. And so sure. was the play, but you know, I also read that um, they were actually filming cause they filmed this in New York city, like as the riots were going on. Mm. Don't know if that's confirmable. Mm, 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 mm. Huh. It'd be pretty close. If it was released in 70, it would have had to have been filmed in 69 most likely or, or near the tail end of it. Yeah. No, that does sound about like the the timeline on that does check out, mm-hmm. and the, like the riots happening and then um, Pride happening like the next year or you know what would become Pride, really like instantly dates it in a really fascinating way. Yeah. You know, not necessarily in a bad way, but you know it's it's a very pre Stonewall time capsule. Yeah, the thing that struck me this time. This is my second time viewing it. It's also kind of weird to see a gay movie pre-AIDS crisis. Uh, yeah, that yeah. too. Like, them talking about, like, going to the baths, like, being almost commonplace, and, like, mm. it sounds like they almost treated it like a hotel. Like, they'd check in and, like, stay there for, like, days. Mm-hmm. I n- never hear people openly talk about, like, staying at baths for days anymore. It just strikes me as, like, uniquely pre-AIDS crisis, which we really don't have a lot of movies or or, or anything like that as a time capsule for that. Yeah, certainly not anything as, you know, it's not like slickly produced, uh, you know, it's not mm-hmm. like a blockbuster, but, you know, it is it is very expertly made, you know? Oh, for, yeah. yeah. For a movie about, like, a marginalized population uh, that had never really been put on film before mm-hmm. to that extent. Yeah, pretty amazing to see something that lavish. Yeah, because uh, this is William Friedkin, who his next film was the Academy Award-winning French Connection, mm-hmm. and then the movie after that was The Exorcist. So it's like... It's weird to think that this was like the stepping stone right mm. before he was like the most mainstream of directors. But 
he's a big theater fan. That's where he casts most of his actors from. Like he just sees a bunch of plays and like he's like, I like you. You should be in my movie. He doesn't do auditions. He doesn't do uh, casting calls. He doesn't look at film reels or, or uh, uh, audition tapes or anything. Hmm. And like the movie that he did right before this was a Harold Pinter play called The Birthday Party. Thematically, they don't have a lot in common, but you can see like the mechanics of his filmmaking huh. working itself out. And it's like everything that he tried and failed to do in the birthday party, he got right in this. Well, I honestly, I found like the beginning of the movie a little, I wouldn't say boring exactly, but I was like, can we just get to whatever's going to happen? <laughs> you could tell that that was like the portions that probably weren't in the play. Like the play probably started with the phone ringing and uh, hmm. Michael like running into his apartment to answer it sure because there's all these dialogueless scenes of like them like walking through like the meat packing district or like them Honestly, going into gay I like bars that stuff like I, I was fascinated to see like okay this is what the city looked like back then oh yeah that's really cool the, um the gay bar that they show in that montage is julius's it's famous it's still around apparently and uh i heard about it recently from somebody but i saw it recently in um can you ever forgive me mm, oh okay that, that, there's a lot of scenes that take place in that and they like purposely make the bar like cavernous and empty feeling because mm. it takes place in like the uh early 80s or mid 80s kind of thing mm. so it was interesting to see that same space just packed full of gay men like frolicking around i wonder if the yeah. bar's still around it is yeah it's a national landmark now oh so. really mm-hmm. yeah. oh that's cool but i did think it was weird that the movie started with a montage yeah Can you think of many that start that way no oh dear what's the really terrible movie sci-fi film that starts with the international space station and a bunch of aliens oh it's by the guy who made the fifth element Oh, no. Valerian? Yes, Valerian starts with a montage. <laughs> You're right, it does. Good point. Good I can't point. believe I just compared these two films. <laughs> before going for that, real quick, have you seen this movie before, Matt? No, I've seen like lots of little bits and pieces, but this is the first time I watched it. All oh, the way really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, uh, I mean, this was your choice of movie. Was this mm-hmm. just sort of like an excuse to watch it, or you're kind like, of. okay, yeah? You know, I know that uh, it's something I should have seen. Sure. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Given the work that I do, not like you know, I'm, I'm not one of those people who's like, well, every gay person has to see this movie. Uh-huh. But um, given that I talk about queer entertainment all the time. The fact that I've only seen like highlights of the film, I've had some guilt about that. So okay. now, mm. now I can finally look back on it and say like, eh, the highlights are enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you like your movies happy, this probably isn't for you. Like, it is a bummer. I initially came across this movie because I had a coworker who was in a stage production in like 1974. Oh wow! Uh, Who did they play? They played Larry, the uh, oh, okay. the fashion photographer who needs it all. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the one that can't be monogamous. Looks a little like Zachary Quinto. Is that who Zachary Quinto is going to play in the no, new version? No, he's oh. playing Harold. Zachary Quinto is. I know the old pockmarked Jew, as they say in the the movie. I can see it. I, I think he'll be great. Because he can do Sinister. He, you know, when yeah. he was Silar. Totally, Back yeah. in the day. Like, he can do that. Like, when Harold came in, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, Harold reminded me of a shark throughout the entire film. Sure. Just, like, circling this, like, deadly, like, you'd see him in the background, uh, and yeah. you're like, oh, he's about to pounce. Well, yeah, because he had, like, a slow, methodical, but, like, purposeful walk to him. Mm-hmm. He was a figure skater. Oh, they really? said like well not the actual actor but the character Harold is, oh. is a figure skater and so like 
you know, the, uh, the actor who plays him, who I don't know his name, purposely kind of made it look like he was kind of gliding around. Wow. I did like the way that he moved, just because it was different from everyone else who seems very, you know, naturalistic in their movements. His was, like, calculated, like, when he's, like, walking into the apartment in, like, his introduction scene. And it's like it's like that trick where, you know, you, you get put on, like, a skateboard or something and it's pulled. <laughs> like, it doesn't look like any of them's actually moving, but he's just gliding towards you. I also wrote it up to the fact, like, because he's high. He's yeah. Like, mm. I'm walking normal. I am walking <laughs> normal. <laughs> <laughs> when I first watched this years ago, I labeled Harold as, like, the old one. And he's, he's this is his 32nd birthday party. <laughs> no. You know, here's the thing. is like... I could not tell. They all seemed old to me. That like <laughs> looking at these actors. Well, part of it is I think that people just looked older back then. Like if we talk yeah. about like we as a generation talk about how like when we see our parents in yearbooks, they're like they look older than I do now. <laughs> yeah. And I think part of it's kind of that. Like they're all supposed to be like early 30s-ish. So Late like 20s maybe. Yeah. yeah, like I'm older than all of them, but boy, you couldn't tell by looking at us. <laughs> I'd like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> I did, you know, and it caused a kind of dissonance for me because I felt like the actors, the whole movie takes place in basically in this one apartment. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a like a no exit where they're all just like trapped there and mm-hmm. this horrible. They all yeah. hate. They, they, I think I feel justified in saying they all seem to hate each other and themselves, but also they're all they've got. And sure. so, yes, there's this, um, I was struck by how juvenile their language was. Like, their behavior reminded me of young gay men. Like, 20-year-old gay men. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, the F-bomb gets dropped a lot. Oh, among many other, like... Among many other things. uh, According to Wikipedia, this is the first uh, major movie to uh, use the word cunt. Cunt. Oh, I thought you'd never say it. I was thinking about this, because for whatever reason, it didn't register with with me when I watched it. 10, 12 years ago, whatever, but the casual racism in this movie was also oh, shocking. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I also think, like, when I was a kid, we used to do, like, my mommy's Chinese, my daddy's Japanese, and I'm a mixed-up kid. Oof. And, like, that was totally okay in, like, 1988. <laughs> so I, I just think, I was like, maybe this is, like, a development of, like, 10 years. <laughs> There's some... There, I mean, not some. There are a lot yeah. of jokes, uh, and I'm doing air quotes. Um, like all the jokes in this movie are mean. Like they're all designed to like like hurt, mm-hmm. and yeah. like the racist ones are. You all want to hear a polite little apologist from the liberal deep south? You know why niggers have such big lips? Cause they're always going. No matter what the standards of the time were. I'm pretty sure, like, a black person hearing that would be like, no, no, I don't like that. Yeah. Well, I think about that a lot in high school, because I remember I had two friends, and one of them would call my black friend an Oreo. And it's like, at the time, we just thought it was funny, and now we're like, oh, that's a microaggression. And we're like, that probably sucked for that guy. Yeah. And, like, I didn't even think twice about it back in the day. But, you know, as years have gone on, I was like, oh, shit, that was really shitty, like, I don't know if I did it. I don't remember me doing it, but there was a pair that it was, like, common for that to happen. But I mean, this is something I thought about a, a lot while watching this is, like, uh, why are they being so mean, number one? And it has something to do, I think, with the fact that they are closeted and there is this, like, societal pressure on, on these gay people to stay that way. And so when they get together, they, there's, like, self-hatred that they take out 
on each other because they don't have anyone else to take it out on. Yeah, I'd agree with that. There's a line kind of close to the end about... Um, if we could just learn not to hate ourselves quite so very much. Maybe a lot less? Because, <laughs> boy, oh boy, it's, it's just brutal. Yeah, but what? it shows like how oppressive mm-hmm. uh, being in the closet can be in this time period. So I mean, no wonder they're tense. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this apartment, this party is, like, where they can let their hair down. And it's, like, while they're letting their hair down, like, these awful parts of them come out. I I was thinking about that, too, where it's, like, you get together. Specifically, Michael, he's, like, purposely bringing out the worst in people. But it's, like, being in a safe space and then realizing it's not safe. Like, that must feel There's a, a moment where Michael, the host of the party, is circling. He, too, like a shark. Um, and he comes to Harold to talk about Harold's face. And... It is just, it's not like even funny memes. I've got bad skin. What can I tell you? Who wouldn't after they deliberately take a pair of tweezers and deliberately mutilate their pores? No wonder you've got holes in your face after the hack job you've done on yourself. He's just so horrible to him. Like, closeted or not, like tension of the of, of the closet, whatever. It just, blech. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I've purposed, I've never been to a party like this before. Like, you know. <laughs> Me neither. But I think it does speak to like, when you have to closet yourself, that that does sort of like, you know, destroy an, an emotional evolutionary part of you. Like, you kind of have to stop developing certain types of emotions in order to like, maintain like a level of straightness in society Mm. i mean ryan and i talk about this like when you're first coming out you know it's not like you have like one televised announcement and everyone knows like you have to like repeatedly come out Mm -hmm. it's like you know certain friends know first and then other friends know and then family knows and then the rest of the family knows and like there's always that like sort of period of time where it's like oh you know I moved to Seattle. Everyone I meet knows that I'm gay. All my new friends know that I'm gay. And then I have to like go to my family reunion or something like that. And only like the cousins who I'm like Facebook friends with know Mm -hmm. and everyone else doesn't. And it's like, Oh God, like you don't realize that weight on you Mm -hmm. until you like, you have to be closeted again. Yeah. I mean, I'm well, well, well past that point, but I do remember like having to like go back in the closet for certain occasions and just, yeah, you don't realize how much it sucks. <laughs> like when you're in there, you you just you're just like this is normal. This is fine. And this isn't to say that like everyone who's in the closet is a monster. But you know, yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, there's this for one thing, no excuse for just how like insanely cruel they are to each other. And also, you know, um I was talking to my partner about this after I watched the movie, like you know, a few like societal changes, a few laws changing, and you know we live in a climate not so different from where they are. I mean, it's yeah. living memory that these people were having their party, so it's not that far removed. Yeah, I, I mean, these could just still be like small town gays. Well, there's still a lot of parts of the country and parts yeah. of the world where the the danger is even more dire. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, in the same way that like. Um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf isn't exactly an authentic portrait of heterosexual life. Right, right. This isn't exactly, like, I assume what every gay experience was like in 1968. But also, like, the environment, like, there's a moment where the assumed-to-be-straight character enters and the tent, like, it's like there's a bomb in the room. Right. Oh, my God, yeah. I, uh... I thought you said you weren't coming. Sorry. I thought about this scene a lot because they're dancing. They're doing a dance sequence and Michael's instructed them like, please just like tone it all down. And then when he comes in, it's like, 
one straight guy and I don't know seven gay men, mm-hmm. and suddenly they're all on edge just yeah. because there's just one guy that they need to be straight for. Yeah, and like that, I, that really struck me watching it this time. Where it was you really like, see the program. You outnumber him. Yeah, you in a space that's yours. You can like, see all of them just like purposely like putting their peacock feathers away, yeah. like trying to. Like, shove it down for, like, five minutes while this guy's here. And I'm kind of, like, good on Emery for saying, no, I'm not going to do this. Emery's my favorite, by the way. He's, like, my my hero in this. Well, Harold's my hero in this movie because (laughs) he seems fairly unfazed by Michael's attacks. Mm -hmm. He doesn't necessarily have the power to, like, stop what Michael's doing. But his demeanor, roughly from the beginning of of when he enters to the end... He doesn't have a huge arc. He's pretty stable throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just him being him is kind of what finally shuts Michael down. Like, he lets Michael, like, blow off some steam and then just, like, comes in and, like, puts the final nail in the coffin. So, Harold's, like, my hero, but Emery is, is uh, I don't know, I attach myself to him. It's tempting, I think, to identify with Harold because he does not present as having any weaknesses. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I like that. Of all the characters in the film, they're they're all, like extraordinarily damaged in ways that are made stark throughout the course of the party. Harold acknowledges his problems. In fact, I think it's like one of his first lines. Someone says, you're late, and he says, What I am, Michael, is a 32-year-old, ugly, pockmarked Jew fairy. And if it takes me a while to pull myself together, and if I smoke a little grass before I get up the nerve to show my face to the world, it's nobody's goddamn business but my own. And how are you this evening? What? Yeah. An amazing <laughs> well, drag queen entrance. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, he, he lays everything out there. Like, he, he comes out, you know, warts and all. Uh, and he's also, like, he, he has that sort of uh, social anxiety that I definitely share. Like, for me, the most awkward of social situations is when it's filled with people that, like, I kind of know. Like, I know them well enough. But, like, I'm fine with strangers. And I'm fine with long-term friends, but there's that middle mm-hmm. period where I get the most anxious. And so Harold, like, getting high because he, like, had to, like, build up the courage. I was like, I relate. I sympathize with that plight. I want to come back to Emery. We'll circle back. But uh, I want to talk about earlier, Matt, when you said that he doesn't have any weaknesses. I'm curious what you both felt was written on or engraved on mm. the picture frame that Michael gives him. Because what I cannot question. read his reaction one way or the other. Oh, what is it, Harold? It's a photograph of him in a silver frame, and there's an inscription engraved on the date. What's it say? Just something personal. To be clear, I say he doesn't present as having weaknesses. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, I think, I think, he is, I think he's got a lot, but okay. um, I think there's two possibilities to me. One is that Michael has really cut him with whatever he wrote. Right. Mm. I don't think it's that because I don't think Michael can do it. I don't think there's anything Michael can say. I think the only way that Michael could undermine Harold is by saying something heartfelt and kind. Yeah. See, that's what I think too. But he, it reads, I mean, it reads both ways to me. I feel like it could be read that way, but could also, his whole demeanor changes when he sees it. And it does seem like heartfelt, but then he like quickly just throws it away. And it's like, it's just some message. Like, or I can't remember exactly the line, but Mm. it's like, and I can't read Michael's reaction in that either. They're just, it's something between them. And I, I believe it's heartfelt, but I don't, 
I'm not sure if I can completely commit to it. Well, and Michael's such a monster that I wonder if this is the this is the story that I've written in my head that it is something kind. Yeah. But that Michael has written something kind, knowing that it will wound Harold to read it. Ugh. Because that Harold will come in, guns blazing, and Michael has preemptively sabotaged his cruelty by taking a high road. Yeah. Well, right. The whole reason why he's throwing the party is so Harold can't say that all we ever do is things for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like, he wanted to, like, purposely stick to her he is a monster <laughs> when you said that i was like oh he's just damaged goods i'm like he's a monster uh on letterbox a lot of my friends like uh john coons being one of them uh was like why would anyone play this telephone game <laughs> i thought uh, about that too but and while i'm watching it and i was watching it with my boyfriend uh and he's like what uh, what is this absurd game but i think it's supposed to help illustrate like how thirsty they are for just recognition of their emotions they just want some yeah. acknowledgement that they have these emotions from the people that they have them towards and it's like they know like that the shit is just hard to do and that you shouldn't do it but they want it anyway so it's like yeah me now who like has a long-term boyfriend and things like that. Like, I wouldn't play telephone, (laughs) but I do sympathize with some of the people who do pick up the phone. There was a line, too. I think it was when he's convincing Bernard to do it, where he says, like, Your curiosity's got the best of you now, so go on. Call him. That was the main thing that made me think, oh... I, I could see if, if like with enough convincing, they're like, now you do want to know what they think if you if you did like call them right now and tell them you love them. What would, yeah. what would happen? So like I do kind of see that. We should probably say like the, the, the game is like Michael puts the phone down in the middle of all of them. And it's this delightful like vintage by our standards rotary phone. And the rules are you have to call the person that you've loved. And like one thing that struck me is that the assumption there is that it will be it will just necessarily, it's just assumed to have been a failed love. Yeah. Somebody that you loved. And because of the tragedy of the gay life, of course you are not with them. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have to call somebody that you've loved and you get points for saying your name. You get a point for saying, I love you. You get five points for saying, I love you. I can't remember all the scoring, but the more vulnerable you make yourself. And I think you're right that um, it's hard to put ourselves in the position of those men. But thinking back to that time when you could not say that. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it reminds me of that phenomenon of whenever a gay man comes out, that's when his adolescence starts. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so for these guys, they're still struggling, like they're emotional 14 year olds in relationships, mm-hmm. you know, and, and having that opportunity to call somebody and say the words that they can't say. And in fact, there's a moment where um, Larry and Hank are both present and they're they're a couple. And one of them calls their answering service, again, like kind of dating the film, mm-hmm. because basically the equivalent of the answering machine, but it's a person who has to write down the message, calls <laughs> oh, and What a leaves, time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, leaves a, a, a message with both their names and the message, I love you. Mm-hmm. And there's just like horror around the room of don't be a fool. Don't, you know, yeah. Yeah. just like, okay, your answering machine knows you're gay now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. The message is from my roommate, Larry. Would you just... Say that I called. It's our answering service. Said I love you. Hank, are you crazy? Just the fear, uh, you know, so I can understand why someone would play that. Because on one hand, oh my God, this is so psychologically damaging. On the other, now's my chance. I can't resist. I know I shouldn't. And yet, like, the cognitive dissonance throughout the film uh, just comes in these, like, horrible waves. Yeah. 
Well, and like with especially with Emily and or Emily, Emery and Bernard, mm-hmm. they had encounters with those people. Like Bernard is an uh, explicitly sexual one, mm-hmm. and uh, Emery just one where somebody showed him kindness. I guess. Yeah, but that like, was. I mean, that's why I really liked because I, you know, I I always like the 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 you know flaming ones in these movies. But like his story of just about like what was it third grade where he met this guy and think, like he was a little yeah. older and uh, just sort of like paid attention to him throughout school and just yeah all this guy was was like, what, like nice said, I'll to be him. your friend yeah. yeah so like I can understand that like for on both of those cases being like I need to know if this person has been thinking about me as much as I've been thinking mm. about them in these past few years like and I could see that being a tempting reason to pick up the phone honestly like there are times when I look through Facebook and like I see an ex on Facebook and I'm like you know the the just social media being what it is satisfies my curiosity but you know in a world where you really don't know what's going on with somebody and it you know your paths cross and then diverged but they're just like seven numbers away. Mm-hmm. Like the the machine is right there. Couple drinks, out. yeah. Like yeah, oh, yeah. And they're like, wasted at this point. So <laughs> well, yeah. Emery was uh, making what blue whales. Yeah, uh, which is looks like just vodka and blue curacao. <laughs> like he just put those things in a blender, no ice. <laughs> what the hell is that, Windex? It's a blue whale. Oh, Mary, don't ask. Even Michael, like, in the beginning, he's going to great lengths talking about how he's not drinking these days, how it was a terrible cycle, you know, he'd be hung over until his first Bloody Mary in the morning, and then he'd have to, like, make it to lunch where he'd have a few more, and then he'd be ready to go out partying, and then would, the cycle would start all over again. Right. And he's largely okay up until he, like, starts sneaking drinks. That's when, mm. like, the mean starts coming out of him, and it's like... I don't like to stereotype, but, like, if you're a mean drunk, like, the meanness is already there. Sure. You're just hiding it while sober. And so, they, yeah, there's a couple shots of him just, like, doing a quick shot of vodka. And then, like, he goes back to the party as if nothing was happening. Yeah. And he's just, like, a little bit meaner each time. Mm. Which, coming from a family of alcoholics, I, I appreciate that inclusion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, making a big deal about how he doesn't drink and then making him the mean drunk. You mentioned earlier, Matt, the uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Mm. I saw a lot of that in this film of just like the needling that he does, that Michael mm-hmm. does. Like he just finds ways to dig into people and they're drunk in that movie too. So the, the, the thing that made me think of this, like when I think of Virginia Woolf, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the moment that sticks with me is when Elizabeth Taylor says, what a dump. What a dump. <laughs> what is that? Who said that? It's Betty Davis picture. Who said that? What a dump. There is so that reminded me of like cultural references. There is a bonkers cultural reference in this film, um, and it's not the film making the reference; it's something else referencing it. There's a moment where Emery comes through. Oh, <laughs> he's carrying like that chafing dish or whatever uh-huh. it is with the lasagna, and he goes, "Hot stuff coming through." That is referenced on the Simpsons, yeah, <laughs> on the John Waters episode, yeah, in the right. steel mill. Hot stuff coming through. <laughs> When I saw that, so, like I said, I've never seen this film in its entirety. And when I heard that film, so clearly a reference in The <laughs> Simpsons to that moment, I was like, what on earth, The Simpsons? Who? Yeah. Who on the, in the writer's room? <laughs> I mean, did not, the research. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not to bring it all back to The Simpsons, which, you know, we can easily do. But it's like, that is a show that's like, the more books you read, the more movies you watch, the more jokes you understand mm-hmm. in that. And it's like, the hot stuff coming through, that's already a joke, even if you've never seen Boys in the Band. Like. Right. You know, all my gay friends have referenced that line <laughs> at some point. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows it. 
Uh, I bet they know it from The Simpsons. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Like the Homer's phobia is like in the queer community just a classic episode of The Simpsons. It did that that thing where it's like it's making fun of us, but it's doing it just right. Yeah, uh, it's got John Waters on there for the, like the the stamp of approval. I but... have to wonder when the remake of Boys in the Band happens, like the Zachary Quinto of it all. They're gonna think oh. it's The Simpsons. They're reference. gonna think it's The Simpsons. Yeah, reference. yeah. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to say. Michael had a lovely apartment. Okay. I would kill for that apartment. What a fucking palace. And it's based on one of the, I think one of the actresses, or maybe it was uh, the... Yes, yeah, somebody who, who was a sister or something of one of the actors or something like that. It's her so real apartment. They shot the um, patio, as I understand. They shot the patio for real on location, okay. but the interior was too cramped to like actually shoot sure, sure. So they just rebuilt everything on a soundstage. But like, wow, what a, like, I saw it <laughs> yeah, as like, like the glass ceiling. So it's like when the oh. rain's falling, you can, uh, and it was two stories, which, no. oh, I was in love yeah, with that like apartment. Yeah, like balcony sort of arrangement. Shoot. And like the strange, it just felt so stagey. Yeah. Um, it like, and I wonder like how it's put, how, how it's staged. Like it, it, it is multi-storied in the stage production because when I talked to my old coworker about it, he did specifically say like, I, uh, I played Larry, uh, me and my boyfriend, we go upstairs to the room and lie down for like the whole third act of the play. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that the person who was playing Hank to his Larry uh, was gay in real life. And while they were up there doing performances, like would always hit on him. Just like <laughs> gently flirt and sort of like, you know, rub his stomach and things like that. And just, and so like they just have to like make do up there for like, you know, 40 minutes of the play or something. <laughs> right. Cause it's just like open to the audience, right? Yeah. So, it's like you can see him <laughs> character, up there. Then. That's in character. But yeah, because I mean, even if you're not speaking, it doesn't mean that like you're dead, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, he, he said, yeah, it was like six weeks or something like that. <laughs> Eight shows a week doing that. Great. Did they end up together? No. <laughs> uh, he's straight, so. Oh, okay. Uh, and and I, I, I feel because uh, this specific coworker had worked in the theater for so long that if he was gay, he would have had the chance to come out. Okay. Sure. Because, okay. yeah, he told me long, long ago, we started working together when I was like 18. Uh, he told me that uh, he's like, if your sex life ever dries up, just join a community theater. Mm-hmm. He's like, you can work technical backstage. You don't have to be an actor. Whatever <laughs> your persuasion is. It'll be there. What did, what did you say earlier with that, the euphemism for, for gay men in the 30s? Oh, a temperament uniquely suited to a life in the theater. <laughs> mm, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I was watching this with my boyfriend, and I, I was like, this is an important gay movie. You should sit down and watch it with me, because he doesn't watch every podcast movie with me. And I told him at the beginning, I was like, one of the things that make this important is that, you know, it primarily revolves around gay men, and, like, none of them kill themselves or are killed at the end of the movie. Might as well be, though. I mean, <laughs> well, we're getting, it's like right in the middle of like the telephone game. And he goes, you said this was a happy movie. And I was like, I did not tell you that. I was like, what What did I say? Like, I don't remember what I said. He goes, he was like, well, you said like no one dies. I was like, aha, very different. Yeah. I was like, I did not say this was a happy movie. I definitely like, once this was done, I'd like put on some like Will and Grace's like a palate cleanser. Yeah. I was like, I just need something lighthearted and funny and to get rid of this. Because this, I can't go to sleep after seeing this one. I mean, what a contrast um, going from like 30 years difference from Boys in the Band to Will and Grace where, oh, thank God we can laugh about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, not that there was no such thing as gay comedy in the 60s, but 
Yeah, like, when I think about, like, what was on TV at the time, gays were serial killers, lesbians were, like, murdering little old ladies in nursing homes. Mm. It was all, like, tragedy. Yeah, they're either the villain or they, like, commit suicide just because they can't live with themselves. Like, So my introduction to this movie was from the Celluloid Closet film Mm -hmm. documentary. And when, like, they make a point in that documentary, it's like, here's, like, the first film where everybody survives. And I was like, oh, I should, this seems like an important film. And I remember watching, like, God... That's the best yeah, we could do at this, this time. This is our compromise. Ooh, well, I have to wonder like, what it was like for queer audiences at the time to see this film. On one hand, hooray, it's us, we exist. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, ugh. I'm sure it was really ambivalent. Well, I mean, we've talked about William Friedkin's other gay-themed movie in a previous episode, Cruisin'. Mm-hmm. And it's like that takes place in the New York like BDSM scene. Mm-hmm. And how, like, there was, like, protests, like, organized by Vito Russo, the cellular closet. But it's, like, I guess the, the that specific, like, the leather scene in New York mm-hmm. was just, like... Loved it. Yeah, they were, like, <laughs> I feel seen. Mm. But yeah. it's, like, you know, there's only, like, five gay movies. One's Boys in the Band, the other's Cruising. And in that, it's, like, the gay people, like, they're getting, like, fisted in bars and things like that. Uh, and then, like, one of them is also, like, luring people home to kill them. And it's, like... Okay, <laughs> maybe if there was more gay movies, this wouldn't be such a problem. But it's like this is like the first gay movie in ten years, and we're all like in slings with like Crisco on our hands <laughs> and stabbing people. Yeah, while yeah. trying to get a blowjob. There's you know an element of like don't spook the horses. Like I mean, I feel like this is kind of the will and grace of it. Like look respectable, look decent, don't be too much of a freak. And then you've got the John Waters, uh, you know, of like, uh, tell your mother I hate her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a great line. So, uh, you know, I don't know where this movie falls exactly, because on one hand, these are respectable gay men who have their own lives and they seem pretty put together. But on the other hand, they are so broken. Mm -hmm. Um, The portrait that I imagine audiences would have come away with is that, I don't know, one of sympathy, I would hope. Well, yeah, or pity, which is what I don't hope. (laughs) Mm. Or, like, you know, just, like, a kind of a confirmation bias of, like, oh, yeah, it's a sad life. Mm. Well, I mean, I I hope someone would see this and they would, like, realize that, you know, being gay is not a choice. Like, they Mm. would look at this and be like, no one's choosing to live this way. Mm. Like, I hope that that's be at least a, a... not maybe not a conscious takeaway, but some impression that they got that someone wouldn't purposely want to live this miserable of a life. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if anything, like one reading is it's as much a choice, like it's 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 as much as a, a lifestyle as like a drug addict or an alcoholic or something. Like these are people who have something psychologically broken about themselves, and so the homosexuality is a manifestation of their psychological brokenness. In the same way that you know, like a I don't know, like a drug user or somebody who's like self-mutilating or something would do. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think you could interpret it as like, it's a choice of terrible, broken people, Mm. which again, like what a bummer. (laughs) Because honestly, like I would choose, you know, I wouldn't choose their life. I wouldn't choose the closeted life they're leading and the cruelty that they're doing. But you know, if I could turn straight, I would never in a million years, I would never want that life. Right. And it's like, uh, Hank, like was married and like has kids and is like going through a divorce and is yeah with Larry. And so like there is a character who presumably like could to some effect lead a heteronormative life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I mean, he does want that in some ways with Larry and that's what their conflict is. And that conflict 
is I feel as timely now as it was back then. The like, evergreen. Yeah, like the the monogamy non monogamy conflict. But I feel like we've got the, like the language and a framework for talking about it now. Like, oh, we yeah, just, like, yeah sure. definitely. Dan Savage columns, and we're good. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, uh, back then, like, I mean, here's the other thing: is like no role models, no, like, no yeah. example of like how to have that conversation. No columns in the newspaper. Well, yeah, because even advice columns, I don't think, could handle something that weighty at the time like you couldn't write into like ann landers or something and have her give you <laughs> advice on non-monogamy and honestly i think they handle it pretty well i do too movie. like they they actually uh larry says what he feels hank says what he feels and they both say well let's try yeah like that's kind of the best you can get in that i think what kind of an understanding do you want respect for one another's freedom with no need to lie or pretend Hank, in my own way, I love you. But you've got to understand that even though I do want to go on living with you, that sometimes there may be others. They're both being honest to one another. Like, they're not hiding it. They have, like, a, a, a sort of don't ask, don't tell philosophy about it. But yeah. that is the way some of these, like, non-monogamous relationships work. Like, I on the side, when I don't have plans with you, when we're already not going to see each other... These things may happen. I won't bring them around. You won't know about it. It won't be an issue. I don't know how readily available penicillin was at the time. And yeah, and, and you know, this is another thing that predates the AIDS crisis. Like that definitely changed how non-monogamy was viewed uh, in the community. But that conflict seemed totally normal every day. Like you could probably write a movie just about those two characters in their day-to-day lives nowadays and call it gay independent cinema. <laughs> yeah. I probably wouldn't watch it, but... <laughs> I really want to uh, move the spotlight back over to Emery because we haven't really... I don't feel like we've championed him enough <laughs> because okay. we're talking about, like, choosing this lifestyle. He clearly has no choice to, but just to live loud and out. And it made me wonder, like, I don't remember what he did in the montage, opening montage. Oh, he works at some, like fancy looking store or something like that i don't i and i couldn't really tell but um yeah and he's like we just see him like holding the lasagna like making his way through new york yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but like he almost seems like somebody who wouldn't choose this group because he is so okay with himself like why why would he want to join this group that seems so like he's such a butterfly that he could probably like he's mm-hmm. a socialite he could go out and make other friends or yeah and it seems like he it seems like he has the least amount of self-loathing. Like, he knows who he is, and he's just doing it, is the impression I get. There's two character notes on Emery that I really like. One is how aggressive he is with the with a character that he thinks is closeted. Mm-hmm. And, like, really goes for the jugular in a way that I think is a little too mean. But still, like, I admire his contempt for the closet. Mm, they love to meet him. Or her. I have such a problem with pronouns. How many S's are there in the word pronoun? How'd you like to kiss my ass? That's got two or more S's in it. How'd you like to blow me? So how do your wife got locked you up? And then when he has this moment of tenderness calling someone who he had deep affection for, there's like a real genuine and I think a little childish wistfulness that is simultaneously like really sweet and really heartbreaking. You don't know me. You wouldn't remember me. Just a friend. Fallen down drunken friend. He's almost like held on to some of his innocence, whereas like Michael, for instance, like has purged it from his being. 
I mean, Michael, yeah, he drinks a lot. He also is sort of a spendthrift, or not spendthrift, but he... He's in debt. He's in debt. <laughs> However, you accumulated debt in 1970. And he gets called out on it a couple times, but, you know, he's got that nice apartment, and he's got nice clothes, and he's got that lovely neckerchief or cravat mm-hmm. or whatever uh, accessory Collection. that was. Yeah. He puts on a good show. Yeah. And then, you know, it breaks. At the end, he has a little meltdown. And for a moment, we see real him. We see him actually devastated about something. And then he goes right back into sarcasm, um, which I just, I found his his wit so exhausting. <laughs> well, am I stunning? You're absolutely stunning. You look like shit, but I'm absolutely stunned. Oh, his cleverness. Just like... Th- he, this is how I feel about it. like there's so few moments in the film where I have any sympathy for these characters. Like, just mm. just knock it off, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and I did like while they were playing telephone, someone's like, It's your turn, Michael. Who are you gonna call? And Harold just kinda chimes in, he's like, Michael doesn't have anyone to call. That says a lot about Michael and like why he's doing this to other people. There's also the element of we haven't brought this up yet, but Michael's Catholic and like a practicing Catholic. Mm-hmm. So it's like he's already got guilt built in and then you throw society on top of that. I'm not defending him, but uh you know, he's gonna have some issues. Yeah, it ends with him um going to mass. He like what does he do? He takes like a Xanax or something, yeah. or a Quaalude or something, whatever it is. A Valium, I Valium. think. Yeah. Valium. He takes Valium and goes to mass, which woof. <laughs> what fun. <laughs> what did you guys think of the uh the little uh uh, uh prostitute, the cowboy? What a little morsel. And you know, that's another <laughs> thing. The reason I disliked Michael is Michael was so dismissive and so condescending to him and like like his jealousy for someone who is just inherently conventionally attractive was so like just made michael seem so much uglier like on the inside i bet you move your lips when you read i bet you sit in a steam room and say things like hot enough for you i don't use the steam room when i go to the gym but you know i love like a dumb handsome kid (laughs) yeah 20 bucks that's all it's the whole night the whole night (laughs) so when this movie initially came out all the actors when they were interviewed because i mean it was controversial upon its release all the actors went at great lengths to reiterate that they, in fact, were not gay. And it wasn't like how, you know, Tom Holland, Spider-Man, who, like, plays with it, or Nick Jonas, who, like, loves the attention or something. This was, like, the cast as a whole were like, nope, not gay, just doing it for, it's just a job like any other. But I, And none of them really went on to do great things. I was, I'm kind of curious, your guys' thoughts, do you think it's because of the stigma of playing gay in 1970? Would do you think that was a career killer for him? I wouldn't think so. Like these, you said um, the director usually like cast people from the stage, right? Mm-hmm. So I wonder if they just had no interest in doing movies and TV and continued like with a career on the stage after that. Which good for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, weren't some of them gay though? IRL were they? Well, I know that Cowboy died of HIV, or oh, like really? half the cast died of AIDS. I think. Oh really? Yeah, I think mm-hmm. I read that somewhere. So. Oh. Because, yeah, to, to me, it's like, you know, playing gay still or coming out as gay is, like, considered a career killer, which mm-hmm. I don't quite understand myself in this day and age. But Yeah, I, you know, I have to think, like, given years later the amount of pressure, like, I don't think it was even a concern back then because it was so few opportunities for someone to play gay. You know, you can see into the 80s, like, there's a lot more, like, strident denials of things. Uh, or I, I guess there's the, um, what's his name, the Rock Hudson. Um, oh, yeah. You know, putting on a show. 
you know, that this idea like, oh, my the publicist says that I have to, you know, that, that, that we, I couldn't possibly. Or my manager says I can't come out. I don't think that was even a thing then because there were no opportunities for gay roles. Mm, yeah. Later on, you know, you see with, um, I forgot his name, Mark something who played uh, the kid in Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Oh, yeah. Like he was heavily pressured to stay closeted. Uh, and that was like, what, 84, 85? Yeah, right around then. But I don't think in, yeah. in 70, in 1970, I don't think there were enough gay roles in movies or TV. That it was a, a, a deciding factor. and For it just to be like, acquired knowledge that like oh we all deny this because this i mean was important film because it was groundbreaking because it was the first time you had an opportunity to do something like this yeah i wanted to bring up we you know we kind of started while talking about freaking a little bit like uh what did you think about his direction of this i really enjoyed it because i don't see framing or blocking i should say like this in modern movies it almost seems like blocking the way that he does it is uh, a bygone art form because right after uh bernard the the first person to play like the telephone game right after he hangs up there's there's a shot michael's in the center bernard's behind him like hanging up the phone uh cowboy and emery are like lying on the couch and it's like michael's closest to the lens so he looks the biggest but you can see like all the main characters in one shot but they're like almost decorated around it like a painting and they sort of like move and scuttle off from there. But it's like that's the sort of blocking that you just don't see even in independent films these days. I think the lighting is particularly amazing. Like yeah. it gets darker and darker and darker as the party goes on. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the way that people move in and out of shadow, uh, I think, is really interesting. And I agree, like the blocking is pretty incredible because there's always it's like a tableau every shot is like a painting here because there's always someone interesting in the background watching except when you know somebody like is completely isolated emotionally they are isolated in the frame there's like a lot of amazing things happening with like light and dark so just like beautifully 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 shot yeah yeah my main thing was just like it feels like he was smart enough to kind of get out of the way of the play and the and the actors like he makes it feel like he's not directing sure which i appreciate there was one moment where I really felt the director's presence, and that was when, I think it was the first time the phone was being dialed. There's this very interesting cutting that goes on there. Okay. With each, like, rotation of the dial, it cuts very fast to each of the characters, tight close-up on each character's face. Okay. And it kind of took me out of the scene, mm. because there were no fast cuts like that anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And it just felt very montage all of a sudden. Okay. And... I was like, I get that, like, everyone's eyes are on this phone right now, and everyone's staring, and it's like a tense moment, but suddenly I felt like I was in an editing bay instead of watching a movie. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's one scene near the end when uh, Harold's going in for the kill with Michael, and Michael's, like, looking out the window, and he's sweaty, and, like, you see the the, uh, uh, profile of Michael, and... Harold's looking directly at the camera, but you're only seeing side of his face, like the profile's obscuring the other half. You're a sad and pathetic man. You're a homosexual, and you don't want to be. But there's nothing you can do to change it. It's sort of also saying that, like, these are two people of, like, you know, cut from the same cloth. It's like a little uh, Bergman persona-y right here, purposely so. It's like Harold has learned to, like, live with his guilt. Like, that's what he's comfortable in his trauma and his anxieties uh where michael's still dealing with it 
but yeah, overall, thumbs up to to Friedkin. Yeah, I mean, I like him a lot as a director. I like, I mean, I liked the moments when he did find. I mean, I'm curious now to go back and see what the cutscene that you're talking about. But for the most part, I did like it when it felt like, oh, here's a director, like when these when uh, cowboys playing with that red cellophane. Oh yeah, and like spinning the glass egg, and like you mentioned earlier, the like rain falling on those like slanted windows up top, like just stuff like that is a choice that I think he made that really enriches the film yeah i mean what was what, what was everyone's overall opinion of it because it's it this is one of those films that like i don't think that you can just put on like a one-dimensional matrix for uh or metric for just a star rating or a thumbs mm-hmm. up thumbs down but uh if you had to like just sum up your emotions for the movie what would you do you know, for me, it um, reminded me, this is going to be another very strange comparison, it reminded me of the Dark Knight films okay. in that I was like, this is a very good movie that I don't want to watch. Mm. It just bums me out. Um, same thing with uh, Snowpiercer. Like, mm. this is a very good movie that makes me too sad for me yeah. to enjoy watching it. Sure. That having been said, one of my other takeaways from it was um, so my partner was sleeping while I was watching. And uh, when I came to bed, uh, he was like, how was it? And I was like, you know. I may not always be very kind to myself, <laughs> but at least I'm not as bad as those fuckers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that I revisited this because it'd been, I don't know, maybe as long as like 12 years. And the first time I watched it, I did not know how depressing it got. So it's like, I had like friends over and we all watched it, <laughs> which it, this is not a party movie. But watching it and seeing it at different intervals of my life does kind of remind me of like how far the community has come. And it sort of, like, puts into perspective a lot of, like, the trials and tribulations that, like, you know, of where we've been. I do enjoy it in that manner. I mean, it is hard to sit through. I think the older you get, the more that telephone game seems cruel. Uh, Well, I think Michael's motivation for making the play is particularly heinous. It's for his amusement. Yeah, Yeah. he wants to to see them This is his Circus Maximus, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad that I revisited it. It's one that I wanted to do for a long time, and I, and I knew that we'd do it eventually on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So I've been like, we're going to do every freaking film at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm glad that we had someone on who like knows socio political queer history too. So that that's that's good to have on. Yeah, yeah it's just a, a real stark reminder of how bad things were. Yeah, and also like yeah. how much worse they were when he started writing. I think he started writing it about ten years earlier. And um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mark Crowley. So he, you know, he'd written it on and off like over a course of a very long time, and like this is before the DSM delisted homosexuality as a mental illness. Right. Homosexuality was illegal in a lot of places. Uh, you just get you like shot and killed or beaten in a lot of places. I mean, when you think of the fifties, when you know Vice the ball squads got rolling on the, and, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, Emory gets beaten up in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. He tells I, a story about getting like uh, being in a bathhouse when it's raided. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna say like they do talk about yeah bathhouses having policemen come in and yeah but ryan your general thoughts i mean my main takeaway this is only my second time seeing this but like my main takeaway from it this time was like yeah it's messy yeah it's problematic and these characters are kind of stereotypes doesn't paint homosexuals in a great light Mm -mm. but i think like watching it this time i realized like it's not trying to tell every homosexual story it's just trying to tell a homosexual story and b even though it's problematic you got to start somewhere, and I'm I'm glad we have this as like a foundation. We can say, okay, so here's a moment in queer cinema, and it's tough to sit through, and it's they're mean to each other, and it's you know like there's it's got problems, but it is like a starting point, and I think that that makes it important. Yeah, and it's like while 
you know, gay men, even if this wasn't an accurate portrayal of how gay men lived in the day, I think we've all had days where we felt like this movie. Yeah. And so, you know, this movie just being that emotion blown up is sort of a nice little thing to have. Matt, thank you again for coming on. Yeah, yeah thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, it's a pleasure. We would love to have you back. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, this is all. This stuff is all I like talking about. Like, <laughs> wherever I am on any of my things, uh, I love talking about this stuff. Speaking of your things, would you like oh, yeah. to plug your junk? Yeah, sure. Thank you. People who uh, enjoy these kinds of conversations may enjoy my podcast, The Sewers of Paris. You've both been guests, uh, where I talk to queer people about entertainment that's changed their lives. Uh, I just had um, a episode with Patrick Bristow, one of the actors you may know as Peter from Ellen. Uh, he was a choreographer in Showgirls. Well, you're actually introducing yes. a screen, and I think this episode comes out on the 23rd, so oh, it's great. like the Monday before the screening. The, oh, it's a documentary. Yes. You, so, you talk about yes. it. <laughs> so there's a new documentary that's going around to a little, um, mostly like art house places right now. It's called You Don't Know Me, N-O-M-I. You Don't Know Me. It's a documentary about showgirls. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I am in the film, I'm in the documentary as, as an expert on showgirls, which I mean, what a high praise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so it's a, it's a movie, like kind of a critical analysis or revisiting of the film. Um, and is it good? Is it bad? Is it both? Uh, I, I, I'm very excited. So I'm going to be introducing it, a screening at Northwest Film Forum here in Seattle on the 27th. So okay. if you're in Seattle, come see You Don't Know Me at Northwest I'm, Film Forum. I'm, I plan on being there myself. So I've got that screening coming up. I've got the Sewers of Paris. Listeners may also enjoy my YouTube series, Culture Cruise. I talk about gay episodes of television. I'm working on an episode about Frasier right now. There's a lot of gay episodes of Frasier. I was going to say, uh, are you going to be talking about the ones with uh, Patrick Stewart? That is it. That's the one. <laughs> Uh, so I've got that, and of course, Queens of Adventure, another podcast that I do with some wonderful, talented uh, drag queens here in Seattle. Uh, it's a comedy storytelling podcast uh, where they are adventuring through uh, a fantasy realm, uh, and it's powered by Dungeons and Dragons. We're actually playing D and D and telling a story as we go. Uh, so it's at queensofadventure.com. Love it for us. Twitter, X-Rated Movies. Facebook, Rated X Movies. Website, xratedmovies.com. Email, x.rated.movies at gmail.com. And leave us love wherever you download this for free. We love love. We love love. So, Ryan, next week. Episode 130. Oof. Time to honor one of our favorite ladies. We're going to do a... Celebrates the work of the one and only Joan Cusack. She always brings something special whenever she's in a movie. You know, the the qualifications to be part of an X-rated double feature is like you got to have that like special X factor, mm-hmm. and she's definitely got something. She's got a, a presence about her, a, a, a way, if you will. Sure, sure, a style. Yeah, there's something just. Remarkable and, and uh, instantly noticeable. Yeah, her. very unique. And uh, what movies are we going to be doing? I think we're going to be doing Toys and okay. then Adam's Family Values. Oh, complete the diptych of the Adam's <laughs> Families. So next week, back to back John Cusack. 
All right, well, Matt, Thanks once again. again, thank you. This was great. I loved it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And uh, until next time, keep, keep reaching, reaching for, for that, that rainbow. rainbow.